everyone. Welcome to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, Ziwon Chong. Hey everyone, I hope you're doing well. Today, I have the lovely Yara El Sherpini, an interdisciplinary artist who uses humor and play to create socially and politically engaged work. Yara got her BA Fine Art in Context at the University of the West of England, Bristol, and her MA Fine Art Media at Slade University College London. She has shown in venues such as the Tate, the Venice Biennale, ZKM, and so much more. I actually had a chance to play her piece at the Venice Biennale before I knew about Yara, which was a happy coincidence. Yara was so kind as to take time out of her day to chat with me and we got to discuss how bodies interact in public spaces, pub quizzes, what does it mean to be participatory and playful, and rethinking context within an artwork. As usual, take care, stay safe, and I hope you enjoy this. Uh, yes, it's very interesting of how to start. It's I interesting because I think definitely my Caribbean and Egyptian identity definitely has influenced my life and my art practice. There's no doubt about that. I grew up in a very small um, ex-comb mining town in the north of England where we were literally, and when I say this, we were literally the only brown people in the village. Mm-hmm. So I grew up with this very astute awareness of being different and of experiencing racism from a very young age, from school children in my class, from people in the streets. So this notion of otherness, otherness and cultural identity was huge for me. And I think like many people of my generation, because this was still the early days in the 70s of immigration mm-hmm. in the UK, very different from, for example, the landscape in America. And moving to, my parents moved to this small northern town because my father worked in the hospital there. It was with, uh, I think, in many ways, a lack of an awareness on their behalf and the, you know, its community's behalf of, of cultural difference. So I grew up astutely aware of my difference and wanting to fit in and always mm-hmm. wanting to not be different. Yeah. Again, I think this is a very familiar experience. And then we moved, my father moved for a job in Saudi and we all moved And we were there on and off for a period of six years. But I think it was very interesting because that was such a shockingly different experience in terms of culture and language and everything. It was so different. And there was a sense of not belonging there, of, of thinking this was a fun, interesting place for holidays. But when we lived there, it was a real challenge for me because it was such another cultural otherness and another yeah. cultural difference. I can imagine, yeah. Um, what, when when did you move back from, from Saudi Arabia back to the UK? Well, actually, I mean, we were just, my, my dad was there for seven years. Okay. So I went when I was eight and we lived there for a bit. And then we, we came back because me and my sisters were just really struggling. And mm. so we would just go for four months a year. Oh, okay. Like seven okay. years would okay. go. My I parents see. would just take us out of school and take yeah. time off in those days. I think things were a bit more flexible and we'd have all our long holidays there. So I it was see. enough time to be connected with friends. So we had friends, life right. community there in Saudi, 
but we were rooted in England. So uh, we came back and then when I was 18, I just went to college in Leeds and did an art foundation for a year. And that changed my life because all of a sudden I was actually within a dynamic multicultural city with lots of people of different race, ethnic background. It was just like just completely new to me, but I understood conceptual art. I started to learn about it, let's say. Mona Hatoum was like the artist that I, I, that changed me and my way of thinking about contemporary art. I was all of a sudden seeing this Arab woman, this Palestinian making political work. And I was always passionate about social activism. I was the person in marches on, you know, you know, attack Iraq marches and, you know, Palestinian movement marches, but I wasn't aware about art making that could be political. I had absolutely no idea. I just was going to art school to paint and draw. Yeah, yeah, draw, yeah, yeah. Do life drawing. Yeah, yeah. And all of a sudden I realized that I could be making an art that was political. And then this notion of liveness, because Mona Hurtum did some sort of live performances and realizing that we could use liveness somehow. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Our bodies and interact with people and work in the public space literally rocked my world. And then I started to learn about lots of other artists, Christian Boltanski and lots of lots of artists that really inspired me. But I think she was a person that really shifted my understanding of what art which, could which be. Which artist? Could you say her name again? Mona Hatoum. Oh, Mona Hatoum, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think she just literally, I mean, she's still one of my favorite artists. I have many, many artists that inspire me. But for me, it was that pinnacle and it was that moment of thinking, oh my God, I can make art and I can be political and this can be art. Like yeah, yeah, when yeah. I was seeing these performances, like it was literally like, Something had been taken out, you know, shifted. And then after that year, I went to live in Egypt for a year with my sisters because we wanted to have this kind of experience to um, discover our roots and feel connected. There was still this feeling of disconnection. And deep down, I was still feeling not British. I'm struggling with my identity and thinking, well, you know, where do I fit in the world? And struggling, thinking, let me go to Egypt. Let me go and live there. Let me see if... That is what I'm longing for and and needing. And what was so interesting is I had an amazing year in Egypt, but it made me feel really British. And it was within (laughs) that context of like, wow, actually I am British. And this is where my identity feels at home. And of course I I, I relate and feel part of that sort of the the culture in Egypt, but I'm in terms of just um, class and the division in class and the, let me think of what the word is, um, sort of the social injustice there yeah. and the lack of a democratic process. Yeah, yeah. And there were too many things that I really, really was struggling with, the division of labour, um, the everything. So I had an absolutely epic year of complete fun and <laughs> had amazing friends and connected yeah. with my friends already. But it also highlighted something that made me feel like as much as I loved going there, I couldn't live there, I couldn't... Right be part of a system that felt so wrong to me. Right, right. And I was continuously going to art galleries and understanding about conceptual art there as well because there was still a fabulous scene. I discovered Emily Jesse's work in Cairo mm-hmm. and realising that there were, again, this feminist movement of women, Arab artists that were making really political work right. about gender identity and about politics and, and you know, global politics. So I think it just cemented the idea that I knew I wanted to study art, that I'd already applied yeah. for art schools. 
And then I went to Bristol University to do a particular course called Fine Art in Context. And again, that absolutely underpinned my understanding of where art could be and how I make art now. So I gathered, I really feel that that course, again, changed my life. And so... Um, and I, I'm happy to talk more about... Yeah, yeah. So I guess, at, so at this point, well, I, th- I wanted to first respond to what you were saying about how when you went to Egypt, you realized how British you were. And I, I was always thinking about my own experiences, how like every time I travel, no matter where I go, that's sort of where I realize how American I am, even though, you know, I think I have a complicated relationship <laughs> as, as a Chinese American and th- what does it mean for me to be American? But it always reveals itself in, like you said, the way that we look at the world, the class mm. issues, and just like the ways of doing things. And yes, it's like we both want to get away from our, you know, our origins and where we are born, but it's also really hard to sometimes, you know, forget about it or completely strip ourselves away from it. And and then I guess, you know, at when, when you applied for your BA in art and fine arts, fine art and context, what did your what did your parents think? What were they sort of? They imagining? were absolutely open. They were really, really happy. They're, it's interesting because I'm the youngest of three, so I think my other sisters okay, didn't have yeah. as much freedom. Yeah, yeah. But by yeah. the time it came to me, they're like, "Do whatever you want. Do whatever you want." And I was like, "I, I know I want to be an artist." Actually, it was mm-hmm. between that and theology because I'm very passionate okay. about comparative religion, and that's something I just found fascinating. So it was always going to be between those two, and I was like, "I want to be an artist." because I want to be an art therapist. For me, I never mm-hmm. thought I wanted to be an artist living in the world being an artist. I was very specific about that. And this Fine Art in Context course in Bristol was the only course in the UK that offered a placement in a hospital, to be honest, in a hospital oh, setting with art okay. therapists. So I chose that, which I never I did. See. I never ended up doing it. And this is all so interesting. I never did that. And I never went down that route. But it was the most fundamentally important course and, and it, this course that doesn't it doesn't exist anymore. What changed? Well, I suppose again it was that potential and the excitement and how much I loved making art. And all of a sudden, I was making this art that was very, I believe, quite radical, quite radical at the time, and just really thinking, really thinking about the potential of what art is and can be. And I've always said that one day I'm going to go into art therapy. And I think in many ways, I've done lots of projects with hospital, in hospital settings with mm-hmm, children. And yeah. in many ways, I've kind of done that through a socially engaged practice with projects. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it's just part of a larger practice. But right. for me, what I think is really important is my entire practice is underpinned with three key themes which are this idea about sight, context, and audience. And that Mm -hmm. is absolutely what this course was about. So this course doesn't exist anymore, which is such a shame. But the fine art and context was about, so there was like a studio cohort of artists that were just making art. And then there was a group of us who were doing fine art and context. And it's so Mm -hmm. fascinating to see the difference. So one would just literally just, we were both doing sort of the traditional life drawing classes and things like that and painting. And there were painting disciplines but we were being asked to think at all times about what it means to site work in a particular site. What is the context? And that could be yeah. geopolitical context, the context of time, the context yeah. of a building, the context mm-hmm. of a commission. Right, and right. who is your audience and how can you engage with them? Yeah. And it was fascinating because we were in this context and yet 
some people were just being taught about how to sort of make art and being process driven. And we were really embedded in a critical dialogue conversation about, well, who is art for? Why are we making? Who are our audiences? What does it mean to make work? And where do you cite it? Because I feel like a lot of artists and, and, you know, respect to all of them are sitting in a studio making this great work that they're passionate about and are really passionate about, be it the colour blue or paint or a smell <laughs> or a sense. And they're just making this work. And then they just know, they just sort of think, oh, yeah. it's going to go in the white cube of a gallery space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't think beyond that. They don't think about, well, what does it mean to be in the white cube of a gallery space? What does that particular gallery space say about that work? What is a political conversation if it's in the Guggenheim or right. a a space that's right by a the company that, that you feel is unethical or the, yeah the institutional critique there is none mm-hmm. of it yeah. or, or if it's in a public space they're not even thinking they're just in the process of making which again yeah respect for that process but we were taught to think well what does it even mean wherever that work is going to be mm-hmm. and yeah. how is how is your audience going to engage with it is it just an audience passively looking at your process yeah mm-hmm. and how can we sort of expand on that and unpick that and think about it so I always start every single sort of lecture or conversation or talk about my work saying that site context and audience underpin every single work yeah yeah every single work I am always thinking I'm not trying to make work for every audience in the world but I am trying to think how will my audience engage who is my audience if it's a commission for a newspaper publication well well that is a very different audience than if the work's going to be cited in a public museum and let me think about the language I use or the format Mm -hmm. I use or the the way in which I engage because those audiences are different and I find that many artists don't think that they think oh I'll still just do a painting and submit it and print it and it'll be printed in a newspaper without thinking well what's the context of the newspaper what's the language of the Mm -hmm. newspaper how can this fit within that that, and and what what are the cultural formats within it how can we tap into that how can I use that to make a piece of work that is critiquing the fact that this is in a newspaper for example right. or whatever or whatever the commission might be yeah and that for me came out of this university degree that absolutely shifted and and this was what was so exciting that we were at this university experiencing these completely new I just this new world I mean live art for me was just this absolutely new world and this was in the very early 2000s mm-hmm. and um Live art, the live art scene in England, in in my opinion, is like 20 years ahead of the live art scene in in New York and in America. (laughs) Like it's so much more nuanced and complex and it's just, it's an incredible scene. And I was seeing these works that were so weird and experimental. And I was like, I was saying, how is this art? I don't even understand. Yeah, This is amazing. And it influenced me and opened my eyes again to... And even another way of really thinking what can be, what art is and what art can be. And it, again, absolutely changed my life. And I worked within the sort of live art, let's say the live art world for, I'd say for sort of 10 years. And I mean, I still make live art, but I was really rooted in it because it was like the most exciting, radical space in, in each of these places in Bristol. And then later on, when I moved to London, it was the most exciting community to be part of. Right. I mean, like, and also, you know, there's like a link between like conceptual art and performance and documentation with, you know, the the work that you're talking about, socially engaged art. And mm-hmm. there's like a, 
you know, direct lineage from one to the other. And so in that sense, like, I think they're, they're constantly in dialogue with each other, right? Performing, having a sort, sort of an engagement. What does it mean to have a, you know, relational aesthetics, relationship with other people? And can that sort of become That's a sort of beautiful and, and perhaps meaningful exchange in a way that, like you said, like it's sort of pushing the edge of like what is art, what is what is daily life. And so, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And actually, so this is what I was just about to say, an artist whose name I can never pronounce right, and I, I feel I'm going to just be mm-hmm. not saying it right at all, um, Teching Hess. Do you know who Teching oh, Hess? Te- yeah, the, the, the Taiwanese uh, artist who, who did like the year-long uh, performances. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah Sorry, yeah. I did say I'd pronounce his name. I don't know so if please, I'm pronouncing I, I forget. I, Somehow I don't have you actually saying his name. Yeah. I thought it was H. Anyway, we worked. So when I was doing this in the first year, doing the live art placements and work experience, I worked with him. We just helped install a show in the site gallery in Sheffield. Okay. And I couldn't, literally couldn't believe him. He was amazing. His talk was amazing. He was talking about this year long. Yes. Yeah. We we just helped. We just helped install this show. I mean, Mm. you know, we were just like work experience people. Yeah. Yeah. It was amazing. And it's these moments, these kinds of artists that we met that we were like, what? This is amazing. It literally is life and art. And, And he gave this epic lecture. So being part of these work experience placements just changed that fundamental idea around relational aesthetics, around how art and life can come together and how we can make art that is is blurring those lines. Yeah, yeah. Awareness and all these political artists that we see and all these these moments, then they were just intimate one-on-one moments or group moments or a performance you don't even know is happening because you're out in a public realm and all of a sudden somebody's doing something like all this different scale of making work. And it was right. a profoundly life-shifting experience for me yeah. in terms of my career. It's hard to beat Teching's one-year performances, though. I mean, I think, like, there's just some serious dedications to his work, right? Like, one year of not making arts, right? One year of uh, being in a room. Absolutely. One year of, uh, like, what, punching punching a whole uh, being connected a card to every 10 minutes. Yes, yeah. You know, so, I mean, and also, like, in terms of... And I think the one who's labor. connected to... Um, yeah, 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 that one with the hair, absolutely. right? Their hair. Yes, and yes. And they had a rope. There was one with a rope. I wish I was oh, yeah. remembering the names of these works. I feel terrible now. So yeah, I was so generally during during my three years at university in Bristol, I was just working in really making live art performative works. I didn't I didn't make anything. I didn't that existed <laughs> on a wall or that was drawn. It was, it was just about those sort of moments. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, one one question that I had that sort of, I guess, sort of transitions or, or part of the work that, you know, I saw a lot on online is sort of like, I was curious during this time, were you doing stand-up? Because like, I know a lot of your work is about performance and about jokes, also like your love of of games, um, you know, like, so, um, but I was curious, like, I felt like somewhere you must, you might have done stand-up or maybe you never got the courage to do something. Yeah, I did, I did. Oh, yeah? No, I'll do, and it'll tell you because also really important because funnily enough, I was just yeah. talking about this yesterday in the lecture, that there was a very particular moment at uh-huh. university um, that, again, changed my relationship So, to art practice. So I was talking about how my work is underpinned with sight, context and audience. And then yeah, the yeah. other elements that for me are absolutely fundamental are humor, play and participation. Mm-hmm. And that moment of humor. So for me, play and participation are an extension for me of that notion of live art. 
but but I'll tell you actually really specifically. So I was making a lot of very political, very intimate work. Mm-hmm. You know, often one on one, often in a very like dark enclosed space, or it was me creating something very hugely political with one other audience member where it was about what happens between me and the audience member in there. And one of my tutors said, you know, it's great. You're making really, really great work, but could you make it funny? Can you make mm-hmm. it humorous? And I, yeah, yeah. I was very serious and said, no, <laughs> no, I can't. It's too, it's too political. It's too yeah. serious. Yeah. I can't make light of it. It's not funny. I said, it's yeah. not funny. Yeah. And then I continued for another year, you know, I was, working a lot with sand and light and sound and intimate spaces and the body but it wasn't funny it Mm -hmm. took me two years to figure out how to do that and and how I could do it in a way that was nuanced and not make light of the work not make light of the issues but try to understand to bring in humor so that tutor probably doesn't realize the effect he's had on my practice but it was that one conversation that it took me to think, oh my God, actually, I think I need to lighten it. And how do I do that? But it took me two years of art making. And it wasn't mm-hmm. until I went to you know, the, the end, I'd say the end of my time at university, I was kind of making work that was a bit more playful. Yeah, yeah. And then during university, during my MA at the Slade, so I went to London to the Slade School of Fine mm-hmm. Art to do my master's. It was during that period that I really started very slowly, again, to start developing humour. And it started actually really with just making sort of visual puns so I was really interested in just looking using uh language like I was inspired by Sarah Lucas's work that was Mm -hmm, often pun based but it wasn't exploring any themes I was passionate about I was passionate about a global politics about what was going on in the world this was Mm -hmm. exactly 9-11 time where this notion of my Arab identity was totally over all over the place. over discussed it was too much it was yeah it was all over the place and it was a very very difficult time to be a brown muslim person in the uk and i wanted to make work about that and i did want to challenge it but i didn't want to only be making work about that right, i wanted right. to make work about what was going on in the middle east what was going on in iraq at the time i wanted to talk yeah, about you don't want it. to be defined by it as, as i didn't so this was this issue that i didn't want yeah to about it, but i wanted to talk about this reality that was happening in the middle east so right one of the first works I did actually in terms of a visual pun was making something called a carpet bomb where I made this carpet bomb and I should probably show you I think there's some images on my website and it was a bomb made out of a Persian carpet yeah yeah and it was talking about this notion of well for me carpet bombing an area what does it mean to carpet bomb an area because carpet bombing was happening and nobody was talking about it because it was happening in the Middle East and it was mm-hmm. their fault because of 9-11 and uh, the West weren't taking any responsibility and how are they framing that conversation? But what would a carpet bomb look like? So it was literally a bomb that looked like a traditional, you know, cartoon picture of a bomb made out of um, Persian carpet. And it was um, a live performance. It was vid- performance to video. Again, working on live art, I wanted to look at, there's a show in England called Blue Peter. So it's a children's educational program that teaches you how to make a certain thing every week. And mm. I use that exact format, that exact language to mm-hmm. teach people how using a football and an inside of a toilet roll, this is how you make a carpet bomb. Yeah. And then we made like, it was a three minute instructional video. And then alongside that was a series of really beautiful prints. And then uh, I had a show in Spain with a hundred right. carpet bombs on the floor. So people could watch the video, learn the instructions and see these objects. And I showed the work at some of the shows at Modern Oxford in the UK and some other group shows. My first step into this idea of, well, how can we make something that's playful, 
that looks at a format from popular culture. So for me, it was this Blue Peter series of educational children's TV. Yeah. But to look at something incredibly serious and to make something that makes people kind of laugh, but actually really, really let's think about what this means. Yeah, yeah. That I think um, when I was looking at your work, um, that was sort of like the f- earliest, or it would be like, I saw it as like the piece that uh, the first piece that you were show or the earliest piece that you showed that you might consider yourself an artist or because you know I think we all think about this a lot uh, when we're yeah, artists, we, what we put into our portfolio but that was like the earliest piece so like I think you know when you were talking about the carbon bomb I think yeah I didn't quite know what you're doing before I mean you talked about the the UN uh, survival kit but at least on what's available online I thought I felt like the carpet the, the carpet bomb sort of encapsulated sort of, um, you know, it was both self-referential and, and also easy to understand, but also it had a lot of different layers after that initial sort of um, hit of, of the sort of a wordplay and, and a one-liner. And, you know, I mean, I think of a lot of how, like, you know, a lot Absolutely. of one-liners in art are not just one-liners, but there's like, there's like all these other meanings behind it. And I think um, it's simple, but not simple. And I think Absolutely. That I, I felt like that's sort of why, you know, you included that as sort of your earliest uh, maybe coming of age absolutely. art piece. Yes, absolutely. It's funny because I suppose I didn't think about it really till you said that, but it is. That's I think that's the defining moment the first time I put an artwork into the world that was really actually really just summarized or could encapsulate my way of working. I think that's it. It encapsulated my way of working. And that one liner is exactly what I was doing. And I do a lot of the time. And I think the title for me of works is so important because often that humor and that one liner is coming yeah. through that. Yeah. So, um, so what was so interesting. So I spent, you, you know, all of my two years doing my MA really, really, really tweaking and refining this notion of the pun and, my, my, my end yeah, of year. learning how to play with language. Absolutely. And how to integrate it in a subtle way. And knowing that it was very, that humor isn't universal. It's a very British humor. And I know that. Yeah. And, and being very aware, <laughs> again, astutely aware of how culturally specific humor is and language yeah, yeah. and visual puns mm-hmm. and wordplay is. And being very happy to work within the context of, you know, British humor and identifying <laughs> with that so deeply. And I was continuing to make one-liners. So my end of year show was actually that work. And my step into stand-up comedy. So at university, when I was at university, all my tutors were really interested in in, what I was doing. And I'd been making making work and I'd done um, some really great projects. And I was in London working with one specific curator who I'd worked with on a project about the uh, African diaspora. And she had a guest curatorial role at Bookworks, which is a fantastic artist book publishing company in England that I totally admired in London and it was like one of those dreams like they, he, they worked with Jeremy Deller and made all these amazing artist mm. books and mm-hmm. I'd always aspired to work with book works but I never thought I'd get a chance yeah so she got an opportunity to commission two Muslim artists okay and the commission brief was to look at the Muslim vernacular okay so she invited me to be one of the artists and I literally said to her, I don't want to do a commission where I'm invited to look at the Muslim vernacular. First of all, I don't even know what that means. What do you mean the Muslim <laughs> vernacular? This was exactly post 9-11. Yeah. And I said, why? I want you to invite me to make a book about anything I want to do. Why? I, I mean, I don't presume you're the white artists that are invited. 
are invited to look at a very specific cultural or religious theme. Yeah. And I said no. Uh And she came back to me and said, you know, this is a really great opportunity. I'm here. Obviously, she didn't say it so specifically, but she was there because she was a token brown curator coming to look at this theme that was so relevant. She was brilliant. I'm not saying she wasn't brilliant, but there was a reason she was invited in to look for Muslim artists. Right. I said no three times. She came. We came back, and I said no. I don't. I don't want to be invited to represent my religion or identity. I just want to be invited as an artist. And when yeah. am I going to be an artist? And it made me realize this this reality that I was always going to be in a box. There was always yeah. going to be a tick. Yeah, that yeah. I was going to be identified by my name, my ethnic, I religious identity, and not about the work I was making. And I wasn't going to be on a level playing field. But what she said is, look, you're if you want to work with Bookworks, this is your chance. Don't keep waiting for it. It might never happen. I'm giving you this chance. Don't cut off your nose to spite your face. Do it. Please. You know, mm-hmm. she was, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm so happy that I worked with her. And she really encouraged me to. And I said, okay, then. Okay. If you want me to, if you're going to commission me, I'm going to do it. But I'm going to write, I'm going to write a series of jokes. I'm just going to take the piss. And she was like, yeah. okay, you do it. Write a series of jokes. Mm-hmm. I'd never written a joke in my life. I'd just been doing these sort of one-liner visual puns. Yeah, yeah, and I was yeah, like, okay, yeah. I'm going to write a joke book. And I <laughs> went on to write Shake and Vac, yeah. which is a little picture of a shake um, with a vacuum. And Shake and Vac is a product in England that you put on your carpet to take oh, away okay. the smell. Okay. Okay. Um, so it was, again, it was that. a visual pun. The whole title yeah. of the project was a visual pun, if you know this product, mm-hmm. Shake and Vac. And it was a series of jokes. And I, I won't say they're the best jokes in the world, but they're all pun based play on words one liners yeah. that you like to say for me a one liner is really a joke is an entry point for a huge amount of geopolitical issues humor has always mm-hmm. been used in the political way that's nothing yeah. new so i created this joke book and i actually really enjoyed it and i was really proud of it and then i thought you know what i don't want just a book as part of my course i, I you know contacted some comedians an amazing comedian called Patrick Monaghan, who is like amazing. He's very well known now, who is half uh, Scottish and half Persian and talks a lot about notions around identity and culture mm-hmm. and had a, just some conversations with him and went to see him do stand up and decided mm-hmm. I'd take the material from my joke book mm-hmm. and go to stand up comedy nights, these okay. open mic nights and just do okay. it. Yeah, And I went and my, you know, I recorded the performances. And for me, they were performances to an audience. They were documentation of a, a live performance. I wasn't performing to the camera. There was always documentation of me in the stand-up comedy nights. And it was this material, you know, people really liked it. And what I thought was really interesting is I got a lot of interest to continue making work from um, people that were uh, programming people because they were looking for brown, Muslim Right. women mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they hadn't even known my material but they were like oh I've seen yeah. your name would you like to come and be part of this would you like to become a part of that and I was like wow yeah, yeah. this is the same thing that's happening yeah so I'm being asked not because I've got great potential because I'm a brown Muslim woman talking about Muslim you know post 9-11 so all yeah. of the questions were about terrorism and identity and culture yeah yeah I was being asked not because of me or my skill but because of my name and like right. the, the content right, right. without them even knowing what the content was. Yeah. But for me, the issue was that it, it was a passive relationship. So the 
The way in which my issue with going into many art galleries is you just go in and you're a passive audience member. But that moment to take it to another level. And I felt there was something missing. I was like, okay, this is great. So um, I had another commission when I was at university. I was actually very busy when I was at university, which was really great for me. It was really, really great. Um, and that helped me move that moment into taking that um, stand-up comedy and moving into my pub quiz work, which yeah. uh, pub quiz work is absolutely, again, a fundamental piece that I think identifies my practice. And after 2005, I was invited to create another piece of work that was related to just, it could have been anything to do with the subject of, f- of food and drink. It had nothing to do with cultural identity. Yeah. And it was there that I decided to extend this stand-up comedy because I was so frustrated with this passive audience relationship and I Mm -hmm. created a pub quiz. And the pub quiz, which started in 2005, which was the year I finished university for me again. So I'm just, as someone who's not British, what is a pub quiz? A a pub quiz is rooted in British popular culture. It's generally sort of a midweek, like a Thursday. It's held in a pub. And it's a, basically a trivia night. It's a series of oh, okay. questions that okay. people okay. really take it seriously. I mean, okay. when you go to a pub quiz night, you go for fun, but it's serious. People are really serious about yeah, it. The general, yeah. general knowledge questions and yeah, there's yeah. always a prize. Mm-hmm. But it's really fun and social. And I was really interested in using something within popular culture that was very British, but that was relational. When we talk about this idea of relational, I didn't want to just be there standing asking these jokes. I actually wanted to provoke conversation and dialogue with people and bring people together in a different context, take Mm -hmm. work outside of the art gallery Mm -hmm. into a public sphere and think about what does it mean to take work in this public sphere? Right, right. So I did this very early commission and it could do anything to do with sort of food or beverage. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to do a pop quiz. So for me, that was just the context. And I just tried it out and wrote a series of questions and they were all playful questions. And the audience had to, oh gosh, I've got, I've got 350 questions now. And now you're asking me, it's funny. I'm not going to be able to think of one, but, but even one. Okay. So even just, just one question that's not particularly political is, then I could, I'll think of a few is what is the national dish of England? Okay. What is it? Is chicken tikka masala. Really? Which is really interesting because most people don't say that, but it's actually... Officially, it it's, is. A, it's a national dish. Oh, is it official? I believe it's official. <laughs> Basically, I'm the quiz mistress and the quiz mistress sure, is sure. always right anyway. Sure, 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 so sure. this is another thing. So I, I, I'm not performing. I yeah. am being the quiz mistress. I'm not performing a role. I'm not acting a role. I'm the quiz mistress. I ask these questions yeah, and then yeah. the people get together and actually it doesn't even matter sometimes what the answer is. It's this conversation of what it is, right, what is right, national right. identity, right. what is food, what is that position? the questions are are bigger than that so but so basically okay I've got all of my quiz questions all here I just have to find it so the kafaya the Palestinian headscarf is available to buy in most top shops in the UK is this because resistance is the new black or B because of Guy Debord's notion of recuperation in which radical ideas and images become safe when commodified mm-hmm. or C because Vogue magazine voted it a black and white classic. Have you got any idea? You've got I A, B or C. C. C, absolutely it's C. Yeah. Um, so another question, a common refrain among many evangelical conservatives in the United States today is that America has drifted into a sort of atheist secularist, humanist, materialist, 
aim or mm-hmm. swamp. Mm-hmm. As a team, would you use a canoe or a kayak to traverse such a swamp? <laughs> so what swamp would you use to traverse a atheist, secularist, humanist, materialist, aim or swamp? You, the and, choice um, is a kayak is, or a canoe? Or a canoe. I don't, I don't know. Well, I mean, ultimately, it doesn't really matter. It's a conversation yeah, yeah, yeah. that matters. Okay, yeah. I've got a maths one for you. So again, and this was time specific of when I will have asked this. So recently, Israeli soldier Gilad mm. Shalit was freed by Hamas mm. in exchange for Israel freeing freeing 1,027 Palestinian political prisoners. So using this rate of exchange, if Hamas mm. freed eight Israeli prisoners, how many Palestinian political prisoners would be freed? So you've got a maths question there. Ugh. You have about a minute to answer yeah. that and no calculators can be used. Something like seven, eight thousand. Actually, I'll need to go to the answers to find that, but it's about eight thousand. <laughs> it's about eight thousand and something. Yeah. So again, it's me using a very specific cultural format of this trivia night and getting yeah, people yeah. together. And they're they're drinking beer and having nuts and crisps and this brilliant um, a soundtrack that um of 80s women singers of power ballads that yeah. I play very specifically. I'm the quiz mistress. It's very joyful. And all of these questions that are political are interceded with very light ones that might be, do peanuts grow on trees? Yeah. You know, are there more people or kangaroos in Australia? So sort of this pitter patter of light ones and then really serious questions that are asking us to really think, you know, really, really think about sort of global politics. So one question is, how many squirrels has Iran arrested on suspicion of spying? Squirrels? Squirrels. <laughs> just, just take a guess. Uh, thousand? Fourteen. Just, just fourteen. Oh, oh, okay, okay. And then actually it's really interesting because these conversations that are quite like, you know, interesting amongst these teams, there are teams of five. You, yeah, you yeah, have to yeah, be a team yeah. no larger than five. And then mm-hmm. there's a prize to be won. So people are competitive mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know the spirit of it and you want to win, but then you're, you're stumped with these questions. But actually it talks about state surveillance and what it means of this fear of these countries that they are actually, animals are being used actually as surveillance. That's not nothing new. Birds are often used, birds of prey are used with cameras to survey environments. So it opens up moments of dialogue and conversation. And I'm hoping interest for people to go away and think, think about how absurd that is, but what does it mean? And actually, you know, there were many herons in Egypt that have been arrested and lots of birds and that have been arrested all over the world because they are being used for spying and mm, tracking mm. and surveillance. So it's, a, right. it's, it's each question opens up a can of worms. Right, right. I've got one final question for you. Okay, sure. So what did a former U.S. Secretary of Education, Bill Bennett, say would reduce crime rates in the U.S.? Was it A, increased access to education, B, decreased access to video games, C, tighter gun control, or D, aborting black babies? Maybe D. It is D. It is D. So you've got, you had a one in four chance of getting that right, and you've got it right. And what's interesting is that is a very politically contentious question in itself that I've had I have had challenges with where people have said I don't have the right to ask that question and that it's too edgy and when I've said too sensitive and people have said no wait can't be d this is why I'm bringing it because actually a b or c all make sense but d is actually what happened and actually Bill Bell and it wasn't even taken out of his role he was able to be you know continue being the secretary of education after saying such a shocking comment 
Mm. publicly this wasn't a a privately recorded conversation that was Mm -hmm. underhand he publicly said this so the queers becomes a relational work absolute relation never documented never videoed because i didn't want it to change that moment we're not performing to camera so it's a real pub quiz people pay a pound to enter so it usually exists as part of a public program so i might have a solo show or a group show or be part of an exhibition and then as part of a public program i'll say and i really want to do a pub quiz we find a pub, we find a pub that's amenable and wants to do it. And I'll be on a yeah. quiz night and I'll just be the guest quiz mistress for that night. Right. And then for me, what's fascinating is I have an audience that are coming because they're reading the public program and they know about it. And then the everyday audience, the people that are going for their weekly pub quizzes. And what's been really fascinating is there have been times when I always start the quiz by saying, this isn't your general quiz. I'm a guest. I'm a guest quiz mistress. I'm not going to be asking you about the Battle of Waterloo, but I might be asking you, you know, and I'll have another random question to let them know what it's like. Do you still want to take part? And they're invited to take part. I'm not forcing participation. I'm saying, do you want to take part? Sometimes it's a pound, sometimes it's free, and there's still a prize to be won. So no one's got anything to lose. And the pound goes to the prize winning money. Yeah. Um, so people, because people always want to win like 30 pounds yeah, or yeah, however yeah. many people are paying us yeah. like, oh, we're winning, playing for 32 pounds today. And yeah. it brings this sense of like joy, a round of drinks and 32 pounds yeah, or whatever. Course, yeah. Yeah. And, and a sense of involvement because once you've paid your pound, you want to play because you've paid a pound right, right, and you want right, to be right. in it to win it. Right, right. So, um, but people have said to me, oh, this isn't what I expected. I can't answer that. And I've got angry because they want a yes or a no or a right yeah, or wrong. And I want that general knowledge. And I'm like, well, this isn't that quiz. And just, you know, you know, please, I'd love you to stay, but you don't have to. And then at the end, all the time, everyone comes and says, that's the best pub quiz I've ever been to. When am I doing another one? And oh my God, this is amazing. And I've, you know, traveled the world being commissioned to do pub quizzes literally all over the world. And it's been absolutely amazing. And I'm always developing new questions. So every single quiz is different. The dynamics different. The questions are different. The weighting of them depending on the, if it's commissioned for something specific, then they'll relate to a theme a little bit more, but they're always that similar sort of really broad ranging set of questions that explore the world and how we see the world. Because for me, it's about all of, so much of my work is about notions around this notion that general knowledge is uncontested, but it is, and it's how we see the world. So what we are taught through what feels like innocent quiz TV shows or general knowledge at school right, right, or right. your history program or what's being seen in a film, they're all framing how we see the world. Right. And for me, it's about unpicking that and saying, well, what are we being taught and what does this actually mean? Right, right. Um, I just want to say, I feel like your co-opting of the pub quiz was like a really, you know, I think as you're talking about, I'm just like, I'm like admiring just how, smart of a move it was because like it's it's something that everyone understands right i mean i think about this also because right actually right now i'm teaching a a social engaged class and you know my students are trying to like do everything they want to like create create the framework create all the different parts and like sometimes it's like you know i'm like thinking like how can you make things a little easier for your life right how can you co-op something that people already understand and just shift it ever so slightly right and i think like you know your pop your pop quiz project it kind of does that right you don't have to explain anything right people understand the the system that it exists in they understand um you know how relationships that are happening you know 
what 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 it means to to have like you said a pub mistress that what what you yeah they're quiz mistress yeah quiz quiz mistress uh you know and what their roles are and what the role of the audience are and like you don't have to like explain anything right absolutely well absolutely that's something again I always emphasize that as in any in you know practically all of my artworks I'm tapping into popular cultural formats. So yeah. I'm utilizing and subverting an existing structure that people recognize exactly like you're saying, people know the role, people know what to do. But my last solo show that Naeem Mahayman curated in New York, because of COVID, we couldn't host a pub quiz. And this was mm-hmm. the first time that I couldn't have it as part of my public program. And it was the first time ever. And it was really funny because it was kind of, it, it was really challenging for me to think about putting something on the wall. This was the first time I've ever framed a piece of wall-based work. And this okay. is 2020 because I, for me, that was never the way I work. There was always an element of playing participation. But right. I took these series of questions and developed a new series for 2020 and worked with an amazing designer, Marwan Kabur, a graphic designer to create a visual language that I wanted for these questions. And they called, mm-hmm. uh, the body of work's called Questioning. And it's mm-hmm. a series of printed and framed questions which again was not what I wanted, but right. I ended up absolutely loving. And then the answers are inverted and upside down. So there's still that mm. moment that if you want to find the answer out, you can find it. You have to search for it. You have to figure it out. Mm. And, you know, oh, I never so, wanted so to So make... they're hidden. They're not just inverted. So they're, they're hidden. hidden. They're, they're okay, hidden. Okay. They're discreet. You can find it. Yeah, yeah. But it's the same. It's a, it's a very similar way of asking questions. Um, I'd love to ask you one of the questions, actually. Sure. Yeah, my favorite. Trivial night in times of COVID. Um, Alexandra Ocas. Oh, let me say that again. Alexandria Ocas. I can never say her name properly. Just yes. AOC. <laughs> AOC. Gosh, I will do. It sounds awful, isn't it? But we'll look at that for cultural, you know, yeah, like. Yeah, simplification. You know, yeah, I feel terrible. Yeah. Ocasio Cortez. I'll say AOC. AOC was called a fucking bitch by Ted Yoho, a fellow member of Congress. His Uh apology included the lines, I cannot apologize for my passion or for loving my God, my family and Mm -hmm. my country. Mm -hmm. So my question is, how many times this year have you apologized but not really meant it? A, once, B, more than once, or C, I never apologize. So, Z1, I'm asking you, how many times in this past year have you apologized but not really meant it? Wait, what were the choices? One, two, or never? Once, more than once, or never. Probably more than once. Okay, so B, I I really appreciate your honesty. So some of the questions are actually about honesty, but it's actually just, again, a way to bring back and highlight this absolutely ridiculous apology by a congressman yeah yeah you know and actually to, to reflect on ourselves and be really honest and actually people yeah. are often then thinking about oh, well actually how many times have i apologized <laughs> um not meant it so yeah. I'm not going to a piece of work that i've made but one of the things is for me questioning is a really important theme through all of my work yeah and i mean some of my favorite works i would say is for example at the venice biennial in 2015 um Which i, I want to say oh, i i played when you were there in Venice, yeah, I, I, I mean, I mean, I didn't know, I didn't know you at the time, but I was, oh, I, played, I played that golf, that golf game at Venice, 2015. Yeah, 15. Did you enjoy it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, you to have be to honest, say, now I'm asking you. I, no, uh, but to be honest, until I saw your the pictures, I didn't know which one yeah. was yours, right? Because, because 
I'm not sure. I, I assume when you went I mean. Oh, the whole thing was fun. Yeah, the whole thing was fun. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, one of my favorite works will always be that. Um, yeah. So working, you know, there was nine of us and we were all invited to, to make a mini golf course. And what was yeah, so yeah. fabulous is, again, this idea of context, you want, because, you know, when you go to Venice, there's so much work, you're saturated. And yeah, you, yeah. people, I think, stop seeing work. They just walk in and walk out and walk in and walk out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we made people stop and play. And this exact yeah. thing about participation and it being relational, all of a sudden, You've paid G euro, you paid G euro and that's mm-hmm. it. You want to play. You've paid. I've got my yeah, gar- yeah. card. I've got my little pen yeah, and you yeah. go around and you're invested in it. So these works, yeah. are, they are sculptural works, but they're really participatory and playful. And for me, that absolutely sums up my passion for using, again, a pop- popular cultural format to talk about something incredibly serious. So mine was based on the West Bank barrier system. And mm-hmm. I was just inspired by, that, by this idea that sort of the traditional mini golf windmills stop the movement of people that's the idea you're always trying to slow people down in mini golf so what would it be like if we based it on the west bank barrier system where there are mm-hmm. roadblocks and turnstiles and catapults and barbed wire what was that journey like so that was one of the my, my best favorite projects um i was wondering so was the inclusion of games also because you were playing games with your mm-hmm. kids no, absolutely not. Okay, not, okay. not at all. Okay. Actually, I very rarely play with my ki- actual games with my kids. Absolutely not. It was definitely rooted really in my practice of thinking okay. about pub quiz. A pub quiz is a game. Yeah. A trivial pursuit was a game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, again, how can I utilize, like you said, in terms of social practice, utilize something that exists, but subvert it and pol- politicize it. Because the moment that someone has a relationship, a physical relationship with something or even this conceptual one, if they're answering a question, I think it changes their interaction with an artwork and it stays with them and they engage with it differently. You know, it's just that yeah. moment, that moment of actually saying, well, if we're physically involved, we talk mm-hmm. and think about the work in a different way. Yeah. I mean, and I think, you know, I think you can kind of see that through. And, and actually it, it, what I really enjoy talking to you about is I feel like some of the the experiences that you're explaining, you know, obviously you can't include all the experiences in, in the descriptions of the work, right? And 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 I think one of the problems with uh, relation aesthetics or social engaged art is like you have to be there for a lot of the works, right? Like, yes. the, you know, the the person viewing the work from the website or from the museum or from the book, they're all like the secondary, tertiary uh, audiences, right? And then the, the people who got to experience it they're the ones who, you know, see all the nuances, which makes critiquing it hard and, and also trying to encapsulate the experience is this sort of weird, you know, the weird thing of art trying to have a critique of, of this thing, right? Uh, actually, it's interesting. I'd love to talk, if I can, Ziwan, about another couple of pieces of work, actually, in my last solo show. And one of them I felt is was almost a, de- a departure in some ways to this notion of play, but was a play in a different way. So I decided to revisit an idea of a work that I made in 2011. So I was just trying Mm -hmm. to think back in 2011 in Germany when I was invited to create a piece of work where I'd used a machine called a thermohygrograph. Mm -hmm. And I decided I'd always wanted to revisit that idea. It was always an unfinished sort of idea was a very sort of quick project and I was like I want to revisit it and I just had this absolute sense that this was it this was the time so a thermohygrograph is a machine that is found within many or if not 
all major museums and institution and gallery spaces in the world mm-hmm. for the regulation. In the corner. Yeah, they're always in the corner. They're always on the mm-hmm. periphery. Yeah. Most people will never have seen them. They're out of sight generally, and they're there to monitor the temperature and the com- the humidity and the temperature for the conservation of artworks. So the very scientific uh, instruments that are used for a very specific way to control an environment. And I was really interested in this idea of these objects that are on the periphery that are there to control that space. And what yeah. does it mean to control that space? Yeah. And what are the things on the periphery that we can't see that are monitoring us, that are controlling us, that are dictating what happens in a space? And I wanted to use this machine as a way to critique that and bring it out of the shadows and into, into the center of the space. And what I found fascinating is that they use human hair to monitor temperature and humidity so mm-hmm. for me, this idea that there was a very human element in a scientific right. object was just fascinating. Right. And this was this idea that 10 years ago, I was like, I have to figure out something of how to use this. Right. So what I found out is that ethnographically speaking, there are three types of human hair from an ethnographic standpoint, Afro okay. hair, Asian hair, and Caucasian hair. Okay. These machines generally use Asian hair or sometimes Caucasian hair. And it's real human hair. So what I decided to do is get three machines and change the hair in the three machines to Afro hair, Asian hair, and Caucasian hair. Why why do they use Asian hair more often? Because um, it's more sensitive. So basically the way the hair expands and contracts due to humidity Uh uh, allows the graphical reading. So it's the most sensitive Uh because it has less, I think maybe less elasticity in it. Okay. So, or even more elasticity. I can't remember the actual scientific reason. Oops. But but so they they never use Afro hair. There's too much elasticity in it. Okay. So it's generally Asian or Caucasian. Okay. I didn't know that. So it's fascinating. I mean, I don't think most people know. So I've got three machines, change the hair in each of them. And instead of there being artwork for these to monitor, these were the only things in there. Yeah. So we were monitoring the space. And for me, it was this idea of how we can use these machines to monitor, how, how race here is being used right. to monitor the data of the space, right, right, right. how those graphs are being interpreted. So the only thing in the space were the objects that are used to preserve and control an environment for an artwork, but they're the artwork. So what happens is the... The presence, the way that in, in a way participation and people affect the artwork is it's our breathing and our, our effect on the humidity. It's only by right. people being in the space that we change the humidity levels, of, right, right. whether there's lots of people near or not near, whether there's only right. three viewers allowed because of COVID. Mm-hmm. And all of this information is put on graphs and then the graphs are displayed. So there's no artwork that it's preserving right it's inverting the idea of what the artwork is it's about bringing it in and saying well actually let's bring race into this yeah let's talk about data data driven society and how everything right now especially with covid with graphs and data how can we extrapolate and untangle this history we have with race and data so Mm -hmm. you go in and find these machines are using these racial characteristics to monitor the space so for me, it was a very big shift from this notion around play and humor. It wasn't like you're going in there and you're actually having a belly laugh. I mean, you see all the the questions that are framed on the wall that are in the hallway and in the front space leading into this very different room that has, you know, just minimalist three scientific objects. Right, right. These machines 
But it's a different way of thinking about play and how I'm playing with the location and the positioning of these and a right. subtle intervention to talk even about the museum um, environment and how controlled it is and the curatorial relationship and how much control there is in curatorial decisions and the institution yeah. and how these sort of everyday machines are very rarely seen. They're just used by art conservators are brought into play. So also during all of this sort of six month period, I was having these fascinating conversations with conservators, with art conservators talking about machines, about what does this mean and how can we have mm. conversations around their yeah. role? Their, their roles are invisible. They're also invisible yeah, and on right, the periphery, right, right. but actually have a lot to do with um, how works are shown and if they're, if, you know, how they're displayed and shown. Right. So, um, but it was, it felt, it feels like another shift in a way of working, but that was very much due to these restrictions. It yeah. was because of COVID. We couldn't touch anything. We couldn't yeah. get anyone to interact. The questions had to be framed and someone could look, but but actually thinking very differently about how we how I could utilize right. a sense of playfulness in a show. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think it's really fascinating because when I was reading the description of the work, I didn't, I didn't quite understand the, the role of hair and why why it was being used. So it was really interesting to hear about that. And um, yeah, I mean, one one piece that I was curious about is sort of an older piece that 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 you did, but that I was really interested in, which was auctions speak louder than words. Because oh. I thought that was like a really gutsy gutsy piece. But I was wondering if you could talk more about the experience because I got I understood the setup, but I was curious, you know, if you could talk a little bit more about you know, the actual reactions in the audience and, and mm -hmm. how you came up with that piece. So this was pre-social media. It's funny, but now you, you can't right. make that work. So auction speak louder than words. It was actually, I, I've done it twice. And it, so it's, it's a live intervention in a space. And I first did it, I was invited to do a residency in Spain okay. with a group of other artists. Mm. And we had like this sort of group show in the end and this, I didn't want to make anything. I didn't want to put anything on the wall. <laughs> and I was there and I was interested in thinking about this idea of social capital and actually what is the value of social capital. Uh -huh. And that within all of these events, actually all it's about is networking. It's not uh -huh. about what you know, it's about who you know. Yeah. And how can we monetize and put a value on that? Yeah, yeah. So I just said, you know, you know, I'd been there for like a three-week residency and it was, uh, you know, a, you know, people were selling people were selling the work as well and I was not giving my you know yeah. my gallerist that invited me any opportunity to sell anything as such and I was like you know what I want to do this intervention I want and I just thought this pun that auctions speak louder than words yeah because um, it was all about that in the art world that nepotism as well but that was the value of those networks yeah so during the opening this was the first time I did it during the opening you know, I had on a cute little black dress and was really mm -hmm. charming and got all of these people's um, business cards and put them in this little black book and was like really charming. And then at the end, I stood up and said, I'm going to auction this little black book. And this was a time when, of course, people, again, like I said, weren't, weren't connected via social networks. Yeah. So this was a way, and it was me going up there saying, well, this is incredibly valuable. Look, we've got this person. And they were really important sort of people from the Spanish art world. Yeah, the collectors and all of them. Yeah, well, you've got this person and this person. And I was saying, and how much is this going to go for? And I just did a really impromptu auction and just, so you know. So how much was it worth? We, 
sold it for 2,500 euros. Okay, wow. This little black book, it was absolutely insane. I was like, oh my God, that was amazing. But people were shocked and there was that moment of uncomfort of, yeah. oh my God, what's happening yeah. here? This is- How much is a name? Yeah, how much is it worth? And oh, I yeah. didn't, they were thinking, well, I gave you that, probably thinking I gave you that for you, not for you yeah. to sell off. Very much about the idea of trying to- uh, uh, really explicitly and playfully look at those uh, the value of those networks because that's what it is i mean unfortunately i think the longer you live in the art world or spend time there you realize that it is about who you know and the contacts and the social the social capital and the social contract too and that kind of those kind of um relationships and and can we can we undercut it but yeah. right now I could never do that because social media has literally changed how people are linked in, people are connected, right. people right, are right. connected right. in a different way. But yeah. um, I think it was quite provocative at the time. Again, I'm questioning yeah. this idea of artists as service providers and actually thinking about the, the art world in general, because we are providing a service, we are creating an economy, we are creating you know, money for the government and all of these things. And artists are always the least paid yeah and the least valued actually yeah yeah absolutely yeah i mean i think also yeah thinking about like you know how people uh network now i mean i was thinking um you know like it costs about three thousand dollars us dollars to send out an email through eflux right because eflux they were the first ones to have that email list in new york and they have all the new york gallerist email and all the museums and I, i was talking to a curator and he was like, yeah, like for us to send the email on eFlux, we have to buy it in packages of three and each one is $3,000. Wow, I had no idea. So there's yeah. another thing I need to start looking at that. I mean, that's fascinating. I, I, ha- I had no idea, but exactly. It's now monetized in a very different way and all these people are monetizing it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So- and, and actually, I'll just, I will mention one other thing, which I sort of briefly touched on earlier, which was this idea of context is, again, something... Um, so the Dear Deirdre, a piece of work that I did an advice column called Dear Deirdre, which was for Venice Agendas, which was for the Venice Biennial and three other places for Margate and two other galleries, museum spaces in the UK. Mm-hmm. And it was a commission called The Contract. So they mm-hmm. invited, oh, I can't remember, I think it was 14 artists, really, again, really interesting artists, Kerry Young, Hugh Locke and... Oh gosh, this artist I absolutely love and I've forgotten his name. Anyway, we'll have to edit that moment out and I'll read it to you in a minute or something. Sure. So we were invited to create a, a piece of work for this newspaper for the Venice Agendas and these spaces about the social contract. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, what was really interesting, of course, I have total respect and love all of the artists' work that's in this newspaper. But I feel like what my work did which was a really playful and I think very funny and cutting and critique of the social contract in the art world which is the theme of the commission was that it used again this context of a newspaper what do we find in the newspaper Mm -hmm. how do people engage with it one thing that's always in newspapers or advice columns or almost always so how can I use that language that Mm -hmm. format and subvert it and change it to talk about the theme, i.e. the social contract. So it's a series of conversations between this agony aunt called Deirdre and a series of different creative professionals from a curator to an artist to an, you know, administrator talking about these dilemmas. And I think for me, it's always about trying to think about, well, what is the context? 
So for me, for that newspaper, it's what is the context of how people read a newspaper, what they find in it, and how can we subvert the actual theme? Right. And like I said, um, you know, a lot of the other artists made really playful or interesting work, but I question sometimes their awareness of the context yeah, the of content, the paper yeah. and the context of a brief and how to work with that. And I think that's something that as artists, we should always be trying to do thinking about site context audience how yeah. we engage an audience using popular culture and using play and humor and participation as a way to make things um fun actually i think there's right. not enough fun in the art world often or when there is fun there's fun but there's not enough sort of meaty political context behind it and i yeah. think finding a way to make work that's both fun but has a a, a political engagement or activism is is something that's rare to find yeah it's well it's hard to do you know i mean i think each one of those individual things are hard to do by itself right so i think yeah. it's i think most artists are like okay i'm just gonna pick one and try to figure <laughs> out from that angle yeah yeah um yeah uh i'm trying to think i don't have i mean we've we've talked quite extensively uh i know is, is there anything else that i miss or that you want to you want to oh. talk about no, I don't think so. I'm actually glad that we didn't too talk too much about cultural identity because sometimes a lot of the issues that I have had and I had in England during the yeah. sort of early 2000s is this notion I was telling you about box ticking, about the amount of times. Yeah. And I will just mention the amount of times that, you know, I was invited to be part of something during Black History Month, during a show on, you know, Muslim voices on you know, Arab art or something. And it wasn't about my work just being selected for what it was. Yeah. And actually often a lot of frustration when there were, for example, shows literally about, you know, art and play and humor yeah. and participation. And my work yeah, wasn't yeah. in it, but there was yeah. all of these peers that were in it thinking, oh, right, maybe I didn't fill in that tip box. I mean, maybe the curators yeah. didn't like my work on or that. That's fine. But yeah. oftentimes feeling that um, that my peers who were white were seen differently. There's yeah. a slight difference in conversation of, oh, well, we can have this artist for this. Yeah. As opposed to just looking at the work and what the conversation around the work is and yeah. the amount of conversation that was around and involved around identity when often the work wasn't about identity. Yeah. Or yeah. whether the work was really about humor or was about participation. Yeah. It wasn't about this or that, but people are always right. trying to frame the. And I've found that's uh, uh, something I've always struggled with. Yeah. And I'm it's hard. particularly, it is hard because I'm, and I think there's, I think there are many artists that, that really want to talk about their identity and it's really important. And they talk about it in their bios and they talk about it in their work and it's a big part of their life. And, and I understand that their forward movement with that, but there are some people like me who just want to say, look, just look at, I suppose it's the idea of coming and saying that I want to be like everybody else when I was young yeah. growing up. Just wanting, I just want my work to be talked about for my work yeah. as an artist yeah. and not everything else around it. And of course, I know my identity, my experiences and affect the way I make work and why I make work. Yeah. But I still want the work to be read within the view of uh, contemporary art practice as opposed to because of this background or this religion or gender or anything but yeah that's yeah. the world we live in yeah yeah i know i know i i feel like i uh i stopped fighting it 
it's I, I I was joking with my friend. I was sort of like, anytime I'm rejected from a show or or a residency or opportunity, I, I just tell them, I tell myself like, oh, just another Chinese male was selected who just did better work. I mean, that's the truth. Maybe a lot of times I wasn't included just because of artists making other work. But I also see these really subtle, you know, subtle. I mean, I can't even really describe any of them now, but subtle points of differentiation, let's say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I see it again and again. And, you know, that. I, but things are getting better and, you know, things are changing. And in 20 years, I mean, I'm talking about 20 years ago. In 20 yeah. years, things are going to be very yeah. different. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll see. It's also, yeah, I mean, also I'm like thinking, looking at the U.S. and state of politics and how also the i mean not just us everywhere just sort of struggling to figure out how to you know talk about these issues in a new different way right i mean we're, we're coming across like now with the internet with social media all these different ways of speaking are all kind of converging almost at the at the same time and with the same intensity and with the same loudness right yeah so. yeah so let's see how people move forward in that in that cacophony yeah. So as we're winding down, do you want to, you know, sh shout out to any plugs or I know you don't have social media, but any plugs you want to give? I, I'm not really much of a plug person, but I would say if anybody's interested, you know, if anyone interested in learning more about my work, my website's just yarlshabini.com. And if you're interested in my collaborative practice, it's yaraanddavina.com, which again, is not something I've talked about today, but one day. Hopefully me and Z1 will talk about that with my collaborator. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you, you had a lot of different interesting works there as well. But, uh, you know, I, th I thought it would be great to just kind of focus on on your own solo stuff. Just it makes it yeah. easier for the for the context of an Absolutely. interview. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, me and Davina have done lots of interviews together. And I love that actually, just on a personal note, not in this video, it is hard because also when you start collaborating, your identity as a solo artist is somehow diluted. And there's this, yeah. this, there is this real tension that I feel because I adore working with her and I adore working on my own. And I have to find space for both. And especially yeah. with a new life coming into this world, yeah. it's like, how does that balance happen? And how do, how do I maintain a practice that I'm passionate about and a new practice? Right. It's hard. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much, yeah. Z1, for, to, for today. What an honor it was to be able to talk about my practice. I appreciate it. And I know you've got a big job ahead of you because that's like two hours of almost two hours of footage. Yes, it's it's so, fine. I've I've done it long enough. <laughs> okay. Well, I but, wish yeah. you luck. But again, thank you so yeah. much for uh, you know spending that time. I know you also have a busy schedule with with your kids and and yeah. I mean, I, I can only imagine. But it, you know, I appreciate the time that you took to talk with me for this long and talk about your work. And yeah, hopefully in a COVID covidless world or maybe we'll never be free of covid but in the future i'll be able to go back to the states and uh visit california the, the california sunshine which i haven't seen for quite some time oh it's it's blissful it's been like but a bit too hot it's been 31 degrees for the last sort of week it's been boiling but i'm not gonna complain yeah. it's november so you know yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So. Let's hope our paths cross. Who knows? They might cross in Berlin or China. You never know. You never know where they're Yeah, yeah. Or yeah. America or London. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hopefully soon, but we'll see. But in any case, you know, take care, uh, stay in touch. And um, yeah, thanks so much. 
Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye. Seeing Color is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Z1 Chung. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website www.seeingcolorpod.com or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the handle Seeing Color Pod. If you enjoy this show and have the time, I'd appreciate if you could go to Apple Podcast or wherever you listen and give Seeing Color a five-star review. This really helps others discover the show and gives greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again, thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now.